Hello, I'm Jen Choi. Welcome to Voices of Private Equity, a podcast hosted by ILPA, the Institutional Limited Partners Association. In this series, through candid conversations with the people who power this amazing industry, we go beyond the labels and the headlines. Join me in getting to know the individuals who are shaping the future of private equity. In this episode, we're joined by Susanna von Gutlingen. Susanna is a partner in the Alternatives Asset Management Unit within Siemens. And the Alternatives Unit is responsible for the pension fund's global portfolio of private equity and credit funds, secondaries, and co-investments. And today, the Siemens Funds Invest team manages 1.5 billion euros in assets. Susanna, thank you for joining me today. Let's talk a little bit about your career journey. You didn't start your professional life as an LP. You actually started investment banking, worked in mergers, acquisitions, leveraged finance at Goldman and ABN AMRO. And then you came to Siemens in 2008, actually starting out in an investor relations role. And just reflecting back on your time now as an LP, do you think there is such a thing as an ideal career path? What did you bring from your past experience in the banking and M&A world to the work that you do now? in selecting managers and underwriting co-investments? Well, first of all, I'm, I think I'm very grateful for my past because when you're young, you don't realize it at the time, but both doing the M&A and IPO part at Goldman's and the leverage finance part at ABN Amaral, it does provide you with a sound base and, and some knowledge how to value companies and how to look at sectors. And, and I still profit from that. If I look at my, my fellow LPs, there are people with all kinds of backgrounds who are excellent investors. But, you know, if you've done this for 10, 20, 30 years, that is quite some background in itself. So I think there's not the one path that that brings you to being a successful LB. I personally think it's helpful to have a background in something analytical or ideally even in corporate finance because value in companies and value in co-investment is all based on the principles of corporate finance. And But also anything that brings you views on on, on sectors or macroeconomic questions and answers to what to underweight, what to overweight would, would also help. And let's talk about that transition you made within Siemens. So you were in an investor relations role and then the alternatives program was getting started up. What was it that pulled you to this work? What was appealing about it? I felt it's intellectually challenging, and I also felt that it's a perfect place to use what I've done in the past. I've seen the equity side, I've seen the credit side, I've seen the buy side, I've seen the sell side. So I actually thought that the LP life is is, is a perfect way to integrate all of that. And, and also, I was very attracted to, to building a portfolio from scratch. And we'll talk more about the portfolio in a moment, but... You know, you'd made a comment about LP life. We often we often hear that come up, you know, what pulls people to becoming an LP? And just to put it in context, there's so much momentum right now around diversity in our industry. You and I have talked about it quite a bit. Um, and in particular, making our industry a more welcoming place for women. And so that point about choosing to become an LP because of the promise of better work-life balance, do you think that's that's really true? Has that has that been the case for you? 
Certainly, being LP was a perfect opportunity to, at the time when I joined the asset management side, I was also starting a family. And it was being on the LP side as compared to investor relations. It was much easier in terms of the travel entailed. And it's also much easier because of the place in the food chain you have. You're not a service provider that has midnight deadlines. Mostly you can plan your pace. And so for me personally, it was a perfect way to, to combine starting a family with, with doing highly challenging work. Um, I think it would have been harder in investor relations just in terms of the travel involved. I wasn't very aware of the the whole LP sector, honestly, um, before I was contacted with respect to this position, which is strange because I've been somewhat close to this industry, maybe two levels removed for such a long time. But when I was in investment banking and in leveraged finance, we were kind of very focused on the GPs to, without really questions where they got the money from. And, um, and I know a couple of women who actually moved to the LP side. And, and it, it, it might have to do with the ease of combining the LP life with, with a family. It certainly seems to be a theme that we hear about so often. Do you feel like just on balance, we're starting to really make progress in becoming a more inclusive industry? And, and just more generally, it's a cultural point, right? As an industry, are we starting to embrace a little bit more the fact that people have lives outside of work? On the LP side, absolutely. And and if if people from the US would listen to this podcast, they would be probably shocked by the system in Germany where you have 30 days of holidays in a year, you know, 30 days of paid leave and where you can easily stay away the first year after the birth of a child. Then again, in Germany, it's not so easy to get daycare than, than in the UK or the US. So that's maybe also a necessity to stay away a little bit longer. But, but there, are a lot of, there are a lot of elements that can be done to help with work-life balance. But if I look at the GP side, a friend of mine in a senior position at a GP once said, He's intelligent, but as intelligent as everyone else, he made it to the top because he worked harder. And if you have an industry or sector where so much money is to be made and people are competing to get to the top and all people are intelligent, and then, then there's a certain likelihood that the ones who work the hardest get to the top. And you can only work the hardest, you know, and pull the 80, the 90 hours for a stretched period of time if you're not the one responsible for the family as well. I still feel that on balance, and the, the man might not agree, but the women feel that on balance, um, a little bit of a larger share of the family work is mostly still with women. So committing 100% is kind of hard because you have the other these other obligations and you know you might even want to see friends for dinner or something and the notion that you can make a career without really giving it a hundred percent and delegating everything else i still think that is rare in the world of the gps and there's this notion that 
it is necessary because the deals are driving that, that this is not a cultural choice, but that it's a necessity. On the other hand, I see, for example, with the large consultancies here in Germany, and I'm based in Munich, that they were saying the same thing 10 years ago. And then they saw that there was a high competition for talent, um, competition coming from startups, from investment banks, from private equity, from GPs. And as a result, they were changing that culture and they made it possible to have a year of leave of absence and things like that. So I think I think if there's pressure, people sometimes find that, you know, some things are cultural and, and actually not a necessity. So true. And I, I feel like a lot of the GPs that I've been talking to this last year about diversity, equity, inclusion have really begun to embrace culture as a competitive advantage, a competitive differentiator in attracting talent, and particularly this this next generation of talent. Let's talk about your portfolio. You've been there from the beginning, you know, building that portfolio from scratch. You had an office until recently in San Francisco, which gave you a lot of that visibility into the U.S. venture market, small mid-cap funds, um, and you were able to build up that network of relationships but you've also made the decision to really facilitate your Asian portfolio through a relationship with a fund of funds, Axiom. Um, so how have you made those decisions over the years in picking your spots as the Siemens team, You know where you want to be underweight and overweight in the portfolio? And how has the pandemic really shifted your thinking, particularly in terms of building up your pipeline for future? We've always been a very analytical team and tried to come both from the bottom up and the top down. And from the top down, we looked at various criteria. We looked at everything. We looked at GDP size, we looked at GDP growth. But in the end, the most important thing is the size of the private equity markets and the access you have as an organization to the very best players. So with the name Siemens, we always had this immense privilege to have access to a lot of names because there's an interesting element to Siemens as an engineering and technology and software company to be one of your LPs, also as a corporate pension fund. And um, so we started really doing a regional split and saying, how much do we want to have in the US? And we said like 55 to 60 percent. How much do we want to have in Europe? And it was 25 to 30. And it it ended up being something like 15% in rest of the world. We looked at Latin America in particular and, and Asia. If we say non-Europe and non-US, it is mostly China and it is mostly Asia. And then we looked at sectors and we really started simply looking at um, the S&P 500 and saying, okay, what's, what's the regional split there? And then we said, what do we want to overweight? What do we want to underweight? We kind of overweighted tech by simply equal weighting it to the S&P 500, because I think a lot of LPs don't even realize how, how underweight they are tech um, compared to the S&P 500, because they might say, oh, that's, that's inflated in the S&P 500 because they have Amazon and Google. But coming from Siemens, we're saying, no, this is not inflated. This is a mega trend. You know, we see it in the M&A activities in our, in our own corporate activities. And so we have a, a very large exposure to tech, at least until 2012. And, and we have a, um, a clear underweight retail 
because it's so hard to predict who will be the disruptor and who will be the disruptee. Also, we were never very vain in our picks. We never said we want to find the very coolest first-time manager in a remote location. That might be a great decision to do something like this, but we said it's also important to see what we can do in a low interest rate environment. And we, we never shied away from also doing the large tickets and the large funds. And some of the large funds, you know, the fund size might be large, but the single ticket actually might be large or might be very mid-sized or a mix of that. And so, you know, we never try to do the cool thing. We really try to, to do an absolute return strategy. At the same time, we were always pretty careful people, as I said before, with respect to cyclicality. We, we never did large picks in energy just because we don't want to have anything where we care about day-to-day -day price swings or, or actually day-to-day -day weather reports. You know, we try to avoid things with big commodity exposures and, and things where we get weather reports. And, and the combination of all of these things has, has worked very well for us. Your point on technology is an interesting one, in particular, as you describe Siemens as an, as an organization operating in that, that technology space yourselves. I, I wonder, does that give you any sort of an advantage in terms of the types of manager relationships you've been able to cultivate over the years? Yes, it helps us on the venture capital side because machine-to-machine -machine technology, anything that is B2B is at the forefront of Siemens' mind. And, and we're sometimes sellers, we're sometimes buyers of assets. And there are mid-market funds and also venture capital funds that are, that are highly interested in a relationship. And it's a relationship that, that doesn't require them to give a 200 million euro allocation to us. You know, European pension funds, at least a lot of them are, are, are not as big as the US public pension funds. And so mostly it's about giving us a 20 million ticket and the combination of that, you know, relatively small size and the possibly strategic angle is, is, a, is a real advantage in terms of access. And in terms of access, we've talked about your U.S. presence that really gave you um, access to a lot of those U.S. manager relationships. And now we're over a year into this uh, lockdown environment where we're not out on the road. It's a lot harder to meet people. You have to be much more intentional about establishing new relationships. Has that been a factor for you? We had the advantage of of taking advantage of um, years of relationship building. And quick shout out here as well to my colleague, Jackie Hoffman, who was in charge on the, of the US office for, for a long time and is now in our leverage finance unit. There were years that went into relationship building and we, we still profit from that. But we cannot do that for ages. And at some point of time, there needs to be in-person meetings as well. There needs to be travel to, to build new relationships. I don't think the current you know, Zoom culture as the only means to meet people is, is completely sustainable. I think you are in good company um, on that sentiment. We're all eager to be back and meeting in person. Let's talk a bit about your experience as a European LP um, and AIFMD in particular. 
And as you know, ILP has been very engaged on on these topics and, and really trying to navigate to outcomes where our members, our European LP members in particular, you know, don't have any issues around constrained access to non-European managers, right? As level a playing field as possible as far as access to those high quality managers globally. But we hear from a lot of GPs outside of Europe that they're really deterred from uh, trying to raise capital there because the AFMD regime, there are still a lot of ambiguities there and in terms of how it how it applies in practice. In your experience, are those assumed costs and the red tape as onerous as is typically assumed? I think there's several parts to the European market, and it's it is still an important market in terms of raising capital. I know that for for large global fund, it's it's still an important part of, of that LP money mix. So it is definitely worth spending time there and raising money in Europe. We as an organization have always been, you know, proactive in, in reverse solicitation because we've been aware of a lot of market players and could do that. I know that there are certain LPs and GPs who are not comfortable with that. Now, just having gone the path with my organization to moving everything to Luxembourg, I can say it's not as onerous as you think to set up a structure in Luxembourg. And it's not that expensive either. There's so much back office there that is that is just very helpful, that is efficient, that helps control the cost aspect of it. And at least the larger funds that I know, um, I have friends and the IR teams who would tell me that they would have never been as successful with raising money in, in Europe and in Germany um, without at least a co-GP in Luxembourg and, and, and some Luxembourg structure for their funds. So in the end, you can do both. There's probably a critical size where it starts to get interesting, but that size isn't 7 billion. It's somewhere below. It's maybe three or four, who knows? But with the rising asset manager sizes, I think more and more US managers will come to the conclusion that it's actually cost-effective to do that and that it opens the door to, to a lot more LPs than those that that you can contact through the reverse solicitation path. I think that observation really does fly in the face of the conventional wisdom, Susanna, that it's the threshold to make Europe an interesting opportunity as far as taking that step uh, is lower than might be expected. It's easy to to check it out, honestly, with a European law firm. You know, I'm not trying to make advertisements for anyone here, but we did it with Linklaters. They have a Luxembourg office. You know, just check it out with a European law firm and have a discussion. It's not so difficult. Well, let's let's talk a little bit about your team. When you were getting the program at Siemens started, the alternatives program, you modeled your team structure against larger groups. And so as a result, you've got a pretty sizable team relative to the number of commitments you're making annually. Can you say more about the the intent behind that structure? The original intent certainly wasn't, wasn't you know, building a team with 10 investment professionals. It, it, it developed a little bit organically. And at Siemens, you have an organization that is very analytical, that takes investment decisions very seriously, and is also 
kind of risk averse, you know. So we started in 2008, we started having an advisory relationship with Hamilton Lane. And, you know, they taught us a lot about the market, as did the other groups, as did Stepstone and LGT and Harvest and Adam Street. So we learned a lot from these, you know, very professional fund of fund organizations. And I'm... Um, um, Gosh, Pantheon as well, I shouldn't leave anyone out. Though we noticed over time that the information requirements that our IC had, the questions we were getting, were requiring us to do more and more extra work. And that was not because these houses didn't do a good analysis. It had to do, for example, with the fact that that um, they wouldn't know so early in advance what their allocation would be in sought after funds and and they would need to to write their reports in a way that made it possible for those reports to be public because some of their clients had had a publication requirement and and in the end we had a situation where we needed to do so much work anyhow internally that we started thinking um, with the sort of access we have to GPs as Siemens and with the sort of extra work that, you know, our, our culture requires us to do, would it make sense to insource this? And then we did the math simply and looked at the fees we were paying and, and, and the, the capabilities we had internally and and there was an insourcing decision made and that has you know that has paid off for us we think the performance is really high and we feel that um that we do a very thorough analysis for everything but i think all paths are valid you can you know outsource everything or you can do the analysis a little bit less rigorously and still come to superior results. I think there are a lot of paths that are possible. It is interesting that the model that you followed, you know, to some extent really had to take into account the culture within your organization, as you pointed out. Maybe to shift to you, what are you doing when you are not on the clock? Well, I have a 10-year-old son. <laughs> so when I'm not on the clock, it's helping with homework. It's also playing. It's doing play dates with mothers I like and boys he likes, ideally. It is, oh, it was before the pandemic. It was, you know, meeting up with friends and, and visiting a gallery or just meeting up for dinner um, it, it's it's also stranger things like being on Instagram or playing online chess. I'm, I'm actually quite addicted to online chess these days, honestly. It's, it's been going on for years now. And I love blitz chess, which sounds actually strange coming from a German. Um, um, <laughs> but I adore it because it only, you know, blitz chess only takes um, 10 minutes or so for one game, you know. And um, it's something you can easily fit in between. And it's terribly addictive because there are points um, attached to it and you always want to improve. It's, it's probably a bad thing. <laughs> what did you make of The Queen's Gambit? Did you watch The Queen's Gambit series on Netflix? I didn't even watch it because um, if you're a bit of an addicted player, um, 
you know, you don't want to watch other people playing, you want to play yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I think that that storyline really has kind of an addiction to chess on top of other addictions. <laughs> um, well, tell me, what, what's the best advice you've ever received? I've once worked on a project with a very well-mannered UBS banker. And when I was younger, I was taking everything very seriously and being a bit insecure and trying to get everything 100 or 120% right. And that maybe led myself to being a bit more impatient when things took a little bit longer. And he he said um, in, in Latin, fortitan re suavita modo, which... I looked it up, actually, what that means in, in English. It's, it's gently in manner and firmly in action. And, and essentially, this is about, you know, all businesses are people businesses. How you interact with people, how you treat other people is probably 80% of your success. And the rest is 20%. And when I was just starting to work, because of my insecurity, I, I think I had it the other way around. And that was such an important advice to receive. And sounds like it's something you've carried with you throughout life. So so great to get that so early in your career. Doesn't mean I never get it wrong, but <laughs> you know, we are we are all trying and you know, muddling along. <laughs> well, Susan, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was terrific. Thanks a million, Jennifer. And thanks so much for everything Ilpa is doing. Every time we have something new that's standardized or a little bit more LP friendly, I rejoice. Thanks a million. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for that. <laughs>